Since uh, we live in San Francisco, yay, and it is uh, Pride March is coming up soon, I thought I would take this opportunity to talk uh, a little about a little bit about rainbows <laughs> and um, and pride. So um, so I grew up in the in New York in the Bronx and uh, in the 70s and 80s, and there really was not much uh, discussion about gender fluidity. So the name that people would call me was a tomboy, uh, which I was very proud of. <laughs> However, that was kind of a negative term in, in my neighborhood. Um, and I was looking up what one of the definitions of tomboy is, a wild, romping girl, a girl who acts like a spirited boy. So I think that's pretty interesting that wild and romping, that only boys can be wild and romping. Girls, apparently, are not supposed to be wild and romping, at least back then. So as I was looking up uh, on the internet, which of course didn't exist back then, um, at least not that I know of, uh, didn't exist back then in the way it does now, uh, looking up words for gender expression, and I came across this one called demigirl. And I really, really like that. That really resonated with me, demigirl. And it says it's someone who was assigned female at birth, but does not fully identify with being a woman. And I thought, well, that sounds, that sounds like me, a demigirl. That sounds much more empowering and vibrant than a tomboy. And it's also not derivative of the masculine, right? It's, it's um, a demigirl, there's no, there's no boy in there. And also I saw this other word who said gender creative. So like, okay, I, I could go with gender creative. Um, and maybe when I was younger, I liked doing more boy activities because they seemed for me a little bit more fun than the girl activities. And I also had two older brothers and if any of you had older siblings, uh, some of us want to be like our older siblings and others of us really can't stand our older siblings. <laughs> But I, um, I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to do whatever my older brothers were doing. And my mom, who really wanted to have a daughter, was kind of bummed uh, that she had these, you know, she was kind of bummed that she had this daughter that just wanted to wear pants. <laughs> and she couldn't get me into a little skirt or anything like that. Um, so when I was, I don't know, maybe four or five years old, we had this little house in um, the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. And my brother, my oldest brother was outside with some friends. It was a summertime. And you know, summer vacations, you meet a group of kids that you may never see again, right? So he was out there, he was maybe was nine or 10, and he was out there with these boys, and they were, seemed to be older, to, older than him, I don't re remember. But I went out there, because I was like, oh, there's my brother, I'm gonna go out and see my brother. And I ran down the driveway in my little pants, uh, and uh, my tank top. And the boys, they were on the porch, on the, I think they were on the porch, I don't remember exactly. But I remember sort of looking up at them, and one of them asked me if I was a boy. And I said, yes. And then they all started laughing at me. And then I said, no, I, I mean no. And then they started laughing even more. And I ran, I felt all this shame, and I ran away from them. And I could hear their laughter, and I ran to our backyard where the forest was. And I don't know how long I stayed there for. But I think that was the first time I remember ever feeling 
shame. And maybe really feeling suffering at the same time, which shame is suffering, of course. Um, and I don't know how long I was back there, but certainly long enough for them probably to leave. You know, I never mentioned it to my parents, and I think that's part of what shame does, right? It, it disempowers us, and it paralyzes us, right? So I never, I never spoke up about that, which I think is true for children in many, and you know, other instances as well, because our parents are these, our major, uh, our parents and older siblings are these major authority figures uh, for us when we're little, uh, and of course we don't necessarily recognize that. You know, in this, I was looking up uh, shame, um, and this is what the internet's really wonderful for. So this kind of shame is called a state shame. It's a temporary reaction to an event, right? They were laughing at me, I felt ashamed, and I ran away. So that's a, that's a state shame, right? So, of course, I didn't have a name for that shame. For me, it was just a body-mind experience of feeling othered, of feeling like I don't belong. And also probably the first time I ever felt kind of confused about, I mean, obviously I didn't realize that I wasn't a boy, right? I mean, I guess I did the second time when I'm like, no, wait, I'm not a boy. Oh no, I'm, I'm a girl, you know? I mean, but initially I didn't seem to pay attention to that, right? I didn't, I didn't know, I was too young, right? I was too young to be trapped in this box of a binary, binary gender system. I was still floating around in my little non-dual world where, you know, uh, trees were my best friends, and unicorns were real, and uh, you just could float around out in the woods uh, and just feel um, maybe some of that open awareness, that expansiveness, that being in nature, and I think being on the meditation cushion can also help us feel. Um, but they responded this way to me because they were also uh, conditioned, right? Conditioned by this heteronormative um, patriarchy, um, in words that I never even knew, probably until like just yesterday. <laughs> no, joking, I knew those before. But um, certainly that was not the language of the day in uh, outside the Bronx, New York, in, um, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so boys act this way and dress this way, and girls act this way and they dress this way, right? That's, that was the approved gender expression. I was supposed to be in a skirt and I was supposed to be playing you know, with the tea and the dolls, and my brothers are supposed to be scraping their knees and climbing trees and doing all that fun stuff. <laughs> um, so as we know, uh, or maybe some of you don't, but one of the main uh, teachings of the Buddha, simply put, is that everything changes, right? Everything is changing and changes everything, right? So this state shame passed through me, right? And, and maybe had I not felt that shame again, Maybe I never would have felt shame again, right? If that would have just passed through me and it wasn't continued to be um, solidified in my life, uh, it would have just probably been that one experience and then that was it. However, if we continue to experience shame, if we're routinely shamed by our um, parents or other authority figures in our lives, then this can crystallize and become what psychologists call trait. T-R-A-I-T, trait shame. So it becomes part of our personality, right? This trait shame. It's not a temporary state of shame. It's actually a, a shame that becomes embedded in us, that becomes uh, that burrows deep in us and becomes part of our psycho-emotional personality. So this is like a shadowy shame. It's not the shame that 
prevents us from stealing something because we know that's that's kind of like a good kind of shame. Like I, I shouldn't be taking that because it's not mine, right? So this kind of trait shame um, really really alters the way and warps the way that we perceive ourselves and others. And usually we are shamed by people who feel shame, right? And um, I think that it's one way I think that parents of the older generations uh, were raised was in this way where they were shamed. And I don't think people knew better necessarily back then about shaming their children. Um, and I don't really remember my parents shaming so much, but I do remember, I definitely remember that incident um, with, my, with my brothers. Um, so in Buddhism, there's this phrase called proximate cause, right? And the proximate cause of faith in Buddhism is suffering, right? So many people like myself came to Buddhism because there was suffering in my life, which some of you might know is the first noble truth there is suffering in life, okay? Um, so the proximate cause is the nearest condition that gives rise to a specific quality. So suffering is the proximate cause that gives rise to the quality of faith. And I view this uh, trait shame as the proximate cause of gay pride. Right? And since we know that gay pride's symbol is this uh, rainbow flag, I've been thinking a lot about rainbows. And um, I remember when I was in sixth grade, I think it was, our teacher came in with this cool looking glass, 3D glass triangle that was long. It was a prism, right? And this is before the internet, right? So I know you, you probably learned about prisms and all that and rainbows differently than how I learned about them. But she held it up to the window and this invisible sunlight poof, became a rainbow, and it was just fascinating. And we wanted to hang all those little, um, I would say they weren't, uh, you probably know what, the, I don't know what kind of shape they were, but you could hang them from, this, from the um, window, and then the sun comes through, and you can, the prism, you get to see the rainbow, the Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. One of the few acronyms I remember from my childhood. <laughs> Roy G. Biv. I remember going home and telling my parents about Roy G. Biv. Um, so this moment is akin to how I feel, right? This prismatic moment is akin to how I feel about Buddha's teachings. Before I began practicing Zen, I perceived my adult self as this solid, independent me, right? That I was separate from the environment and separate from everybody else. And I didn't know that my perception and experience of myself as this concrete and discrete entity was actually a false view, right? That my sense of myself as separate um, was a false view. And the more that I meditated, the more this sense of separation started to change. It became more ephemeral, like a rainbow. My perception shifted. So this embodied sense of the fluidity of I, this concept we put on ourselves, and we say, I, 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 me, me, me. Um, there's a teaching of the Buddha called the not-self characteristic. It's part of the, um, it's one of the three marks or signs of existence. The first is suffering. There's that word again. <laughs> the second is um, impermanence. Every ch everything changes. And the third is this not self characteristic. It doesn't mean that we don't exist. It just means that we don't exist in this solid, independent, fixed way, 
that's what that means. It's not necessarily an easy teaching um, to understand, but but basically that's what it means that we're just we are arising together in this room, and who we are in this moment in this room, sitting on these cushions or benches. When you all go somewhere else or you break out into your groups, you'll be different people. There'll be a different dynamic, right? Um, so even though we, we, there's some continuity, there's a sense of a continuity of self. Like my mom will be 85 in September. And she's like, I still feel like I was when I was 20. But then I look in the mirror and I don't look like I was when I was 20, right? Because we're always, we're changing. We're constantly changing. So the more I practice um, meditation and study the Buddhist teaching, the more I begin to experience this insubstantiality and the impermanence and this impersonal nature of what's arising, right? I took what my brother's projections were on me and his friends, the, the derisive laughter. I took that personally, but it really said much more about them than it did about me, right? And I remember this teacher once here saying to me that the way someone treats you has more, is more about them. If they compliment you, if they're helpful, it's, th it's there. Um, it's... I mean, obviously you're, you're rising together, but it says a lot about them. Just like if someone insults you or hurts you or harms you, that says something about them. So the more we can learn to not take what other people are saying about us personally, it's not like we don't take responsibility if we've harmed someone, but it's about not taking their projections personally and also not taking our own projections, our own narratives about ourselves personally, right? We're all conditioned in different ways, right? So um, there's this really wonderful book. I think I might have mentioned this quote before a while back, or maybe it was last year, but there's a book called The Heart Attack Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is one of the main sutras that we chant uh, every day in, in this lineage, in the Buddha Hall, in, in service. And the scholar who wrote this says this about, about perception, about our bodies and minds. He says, not only is our perceiving mind dynamic, right? So the mind, that, my, the mind that's perceiving all of you and all of you are perceiving me, that mind is changing constantly, right? It's not a, I don't know if this is the right metaphor, so forgive me, computer people. It's not a hard drive. It's like the RAM. It's constantly changing. It's constantly changing. It's not Buddha's, the Buddha's um, view of, of consciousness is not a fixed thing. It's Constant, right? The consciousness that arose when we heard the siren, right? This, this hearing consciousness, right? We see things because we have seeing consciousness or eye consciousness, right? So everything's always changing. This mind is changing. Everything's changing. What I'm perceiving is changing. And he, he says it this way. He says, so not only is our perceiving mind dynamic and that it changes from moment to moment, but everything we perceive with our senses is dynamic too. Right? Phenomena cannot be defined by themselves, and we are phenomena, right? So rainbows, like everything else we perceive and experience, are, this is a phrase that he uses, complexes of mutual relationships with other phenomena. So it's complex mutual relationships with other phenomena, and that other phenomena are complex Mutual, mutual relationships. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. 
so that's how this scholar talks about phenomena, that you can't define it by itself. We use these handy words, you know, like, this is a cell phone or iPhone, a very old one. But what really is in the iPhone? Everything. The universe is right here in this iPhone. The people who put it together, the minerals, earth, wind, fire, space, it's all in here. It's all in you. Different kind of consciousness, although chat GPT, is that what it's called? Who knows? I heard, I mean, this all came from Jap GPT. I just put it in there and it just, I said rainbows, unicorns, queer, SF, and this is what it printed out for me. What do you think? <laughs> I should have done that. It would have saved some time maybe. No, I didn't do that, but, um, but I, maybe I'll go back and do that and see how I compare. <laughs> so Suzuki Roshi says this about the not self characteristic. It's much more poetic and Suzuki Roshi He's the, he's the teacher who started this uh, San Francisco Zen Center with his students back in the late 60s, early 70s. He says, because we are changing moment by moment, I, I exist because I'm here, but I'm always changing. And he has this other lovely phrase that's like, what we think of as I is just a swinging door in the sky, right? It's just back and forth. Right? Just allowing our perception of ourselves just to flow. And what I found out by doing this research on rainbows is that rainbows don't exist either. They are optical illusions that don't exist in a specific spot in the sky. You can't touch them or really even walk under them, so do not go look for a pot of gold. They move when you move. All right, that's kind of freaky, right? When you look at them from the ground, they look like arches or bows, but when you're in an airplane, they look like circles. And they're composed of millions of raindrops that each contribute rainbow speckles that refract and reflect sunlight in front of a viewer at an angle of 42 degrees. So, rainbow, that's what a rainbow is, right? We just say rainbow, we don't say all these things every time we say rainbow. Again, rainbow is just a concept. Um, so just like seeing that sunlight transform into a rainbow when I was in sixth grade, that shifted my perception of invisible light. All of a sudden, it was more mysterious to me, this light, because I could see these colors and it was beautiful. And my brother's and his friend's reaction to my confusion about my gender also shifted how I perceived myself. Like I said, I felt othered I felt like I didn't belong. And I went from feeling like this excited little kid who's gonna go out and play with her older brother, right? This rainbow consciousness. And then all of a sudden I was restricted. I was put into this little gender binary. I think that also fueled my lifelong, it's not, not so much anymore, but competition with boys. I was like, I always wanted to be the best on the baseball team. <laughs> I, did, I wanted to do whatever they did, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah. So instead of experiencing myself and the boys as an array of colors, there was just the boy color and the girl color. And we know the boy color is? Blue. You, how do you still know that? And the girl color is? Pink. I can't believe that still persists. Like, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I did, by the way. I do like pink, by the way. And I did, I don't know if anyone knows, do you all remember? You don't, we wouldn't remember, but 
members only jackets, would those ever come back? I had a pink one. It cost $100. My mom was like, you got to be kidding me. It's like, but I had to have it in order to be cool. And I wish I still had it because it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's pink. It's just saying, it's pink. Okay. So this rainbow flag of the gay pride movement is a symbol of unity and diversity. Out of the invisible, infinite one source emerges this spectacular array of the 10,000 things, which we all will see next weekend. So the flag was first used on June 25th in 1978 for the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Pride. The first pride marches around the country were held in 1970, and some of you might know this, to commemorate the Stonewall uprisings in Greenwich Village, New York City, which happened uh, between June 28th and July 3rd, 1969. So Stonewall was this gay bar in the village in New York that was always being raided by the police. And so people consider the Stonewall uprising as the catalyst to start the um, pride movement. And one of the proximate causes, I th this is fascinating and really horrifying, uh, one of the proximate causes of the Stonewall uprising was that just 500 feet away from the Stonewall Inn was the woman's house of detention, okay? It opened in 1932, and tens of thousands of women and trans-masculine people were incarcerated there mostly for being gender non-conforming. The by the 1960s, this one scholar says in his book that 75% of the people imprisoned there were queer in some way. So women and transmasculine people were arrested for being wayward and dressing incorrectly for their gender. That law is still on the books. And the law says that the law was created in the mid-1800s. Now we're going back to like a little bit of capitalism and feudalism here. Created in the mid-1800s to criminalize people who dressed in costume to protest tax collectors. It all goes back to capitalism, my friend. It states that it's illegal to dress in costume while committing a crime. However, it's now used to target LGBTQIA communities because they don't always dress according to their gender. Um, I just thought that was really fascinating. And I also read that they use that law to arrest people who are in the Occupy Wall Street uh, protests in New York. In the 1960s, the Women's House of de Detention began marking gay prisoners with D for degenerate and placing them in solitary confinement because they were a danger to other women. The Women's House of Detention was eventually shut down in 1972, which I can't even believe it was still open in 1972. And that was the same year that the first issue of Miss Magazine was published. I hope you know Ms. Magazine, MS. It was a publication for women whose interests went beyond the limits of home and husband. That's how they described it in a New York Times article. And the co-founders of the magazine, one of whom uh, was Gloria Steinem, they used Ms. MS because it, didn't, it described a woman without referring to her marital status, as you probably know. Uh, and not surprisingly, it was banned from some libraries and newsstands, and that might still be the case in 2023, that it's maybe being banned again. Um, so I was five years old when this uh, inaugural issue of MS was, of Ms. was published. So I grew up with Ms. as part of my vocabulary, 
and I always understood its meaning. And maybe that was one of the first times that this sort of flexible, gender-fluid word was introduced into uh, our society. I mean, I know it always referred to a woman, but at least it referred to a woman without making reference to whether or not she was married. So there's so many words now to describe uh, the rainbow of gender identities and expressions. And for me, this new vocabulary really helps me shift my perception, not only of myself, but also of other people. And although, you know, the words we use to label this and that, like I'm saying, you know, they're empty, this cell phone is much more than just a label cell phone. We're all much more than just a label of our name. Um, we also know that words like my brother and his friends, uh, they can harm us, right? We have probably have been on the other side of being harmed by people's words, whether it was intentional or not. So this expanding vocabulary helps all of us view the world with what Suzuki Roshi calls beginner's mind, right? In this beginner's mind, there's many possibilities in the beginner's mind, few possibilities in the expert. And unfortunately, mostly experts uh, run the country and they can be very narrow-minded. So meditation, like we, what we did earlier, this practice helps us cultivate this beginner's mind, right? Helps us to shift the perception of who we think we are and what we think the world is. Um, and helps us become more intimate with the ever-changing internal world of our physical sensations, our emotions, our thoughts, these moods that float through us. And the more spaciousness and uprightness, right, the more sky consciousness and mountain consciousness we can have with what arises in us, then that spaciousness just emanates outward, just naturally. Um, and we, we have more spaciousness for other people just to be who they are because we're not trying to control them, because we're not trying to control ourselves, right, what's going on for us. Um, I also think that this beginner's mind is really helpful to, for us to investigate uh, our myths and our misperceptions of people. Right? So no matter what someone's political beliefs are, their religious traditions, their cultural heritage, we all experience suffering. And we're all trying to find happiness and contentment. We're all trying to care for our family and friends. And if our practice doesn't extend the rainbow as a bridge to all sentient beings, then we're stuck in this binary box of us versus them. And I did discover a few myths about rainbows. Um, and um, one is that they're androgynous. Some countries view rainbows as having male and female qualities. And there's this other myth that I, there's a whole scholarly paper on, on rain, myths of rainbow. I, again, I love the internet. The other myth is that's common to the countries uh, of Bulgaria, Serbia, Australia, Greece, and Sub-Saharan Africa, is that, I'm not making this up, is that if you jump over a rainbow or walk under one, you'll transform from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy. I was like, this is, I can't even believe that this is here for me to write about in this talk, that this is, a true myth, a true myth. That's funny, Heather, okay. So oh, anyway, so Zen is a practice of moving beyond this binary and manifesting the mystery that we are, that life is. There's this really wonderful teacher 
Reverend uh, Earthlin, Zenju Earthlin Manual. Um, read everything that she's written. She says this about Zen. Zen is for those who thrive on the intangible, the ambiguous, the amorphous, and the infinite. We are stars forever suspended in nowhere. Come on, I wish I wrote that. We are stars forever suspended in nowhere. You can't really see Zen. You can only experience it after some time of walking the path. And I hope that as we continue to walk on this path side by side, we walk under many, many rainbows together. So, thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>